0: Hey, deserving listeners. Today, we're going to talk about the movie Joker. A lot of people are asking us to talk about this movie. There's a lot of psychology in this movie. Let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor.
1: And my name is Umberto Castaneda, and I sell little strings for
0: keyboards.
2: Well, my name is Colin, and I'm a real estate agent of
0: chaos. Oh, I gave this 8 out of 10, Berto. Uh, I gave
1: it a 9.5. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like, I would have given it a 10. Uh, There are a few very specific things that I would have dialed slightly differently, and that's the difference for me between a 10 and a 9.5. But I felt so amazing watching it. Loved it so much. Colin?
2: Mine is the same. (laughs) 9.5.
0: Yeah, I could see going up to 9 or 10. I need to see it another time because I was so surprised, I guess, by what I was watching. Now... In terms of emotional impact, definitely a 10. You know, one of the most emotionally impact. Now, as we go into this, I want to say, we're going to spoil the whole movie. So let's get into our reactions. Uh, My first reaction to this movie was that, although there are problems with this movie, uh, minor to moderate, the movie was an amazing case study of someone who has been through a lot. There's a lot of psychology. There's a lot of character development It is 99.9% focused on one individual Joker, Arthur, uh, what's his name? Arthur. I don't know it. Yeah. Anyway, Arthur something. Fleck!
2: Sorry, I didn't mean to scream.
0: What is it? Fleck. Fleck, Arthur Fleck. That's what's kind of funny about a lot of these uh, heroes, these superhero comic heroes developed in the movies is they often have these really like old-fashioned names Uh, my first reaction to this movie as a clinician was just how well the movie was made as a case study of someone's life and how they would develop that way. And you really get a sense of who this person was. I I really felt like I was in his shoes until he started killing people. I could, I, I could really feel his pain and, and understand it. And it wasn't just played off like, like some of the, the tropes that they'll do in movies, sometimes they'll, they'll try to depict a, someone who's going through a struggle. Yeah. They will show them like screaming at the clouds, or they'll be like, uh, they'll have a tremor, or they'll be drinking a lot, or something. And this movie didn't do any of those tropes, really. I mean, they had one trope, which I have a little bit of a problem with, which is like the maniacal laughing. But he's Joker, so he has oh, to do that. I mean, had you
2: heard of that? Have you heard of that like uncontrollable laughter? I was wondering if that was something created for the film. This is hopefully this is not super offensive. What I'm asking, if it is a real thing, I, I didn't know of it.
0: It is a thing. I haven't treated it before, and we'll get into it later. It's an actual condition, and I think they depicted it actually accurately. But just as an example of the character study that I really liked was that it reminded me of times when I was young, actually, when I was more insecure. More unable to soothe myself under certain circumstances, you know. There was that scene where he he just seems to like not really know what to do, and he's doing weird dancing. Not when he's celebrating dancing. When he goes full, yeah. you can tell it's a it's not real. It's like the only thing he can really do in that moment. Because if he doesn't do that, he's going to start breaking things. Or if he doesn't do that, then he has to like jump off a cliff or something. It's, it, yeah, it's just a it's a thing. You're, you just feel all this internal tension. You don't know what to do. And so you just do this weird, you just don't know what to do with your body. So you just start doing something with your body that, you know, is somewhat intentional and gives some soothing. And of course you're alone and no one's really, you don't really have anywhere. I feel like I had experiences like that when I was younger and I've never seen that depicted in a, in an art form before. What were your initial reactions, Colin?
2: I felt like, it, it was a sort of comic book movie that I'd always wanted to watch, but I haven't gotten to see for several years. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that. So when I'm thinking just visually about the last few movies I saw, even Endgame, which I very much loved, very much enjoyed, had a great time. I don't have any visceral memory of any kind of scene in that film where I was like, oh God, like that, that installed a feeling in me and i'm going to walk away with it and every time i think about the movie i can go back to it i have flashes of things i enjoyed characters doing but that's about it visual visually the tone of the colors and the way that things were edited the composition of the shots it was very much for scale filmmaking and and this is in no way like a, a mark on the russo brothers or anybody else that worked on it it's talented people but with this film I was noticing the decisions that were made on intricate details, like the dim lighting in Arthur's apartment, um, the way that the subway looked and not just looked, but the way that it sounded. Like I was hearing it later when I went home, um, The how, how much of a thunderous orchestra the sound of that fricking train was. And even just Arthur's walk, his his slow walk after he shoots that last Wall Street guy, um, how it echoed throughout the the station. And um, because those things bring forth feelings. And I recently was fortunate enough to go to New York and hang out with my sister. And there were times when I took a few of those like late night trains where there is a feeling that comes over you, especially from me, somebody who is not, you know, I don't originate from New York. Um, when there's not a lot of people around you, and you're just in this dense, you know, or, or the opposite of dense, actually, this very spacious place, but you, you feel like you're condensed in some way, you know, people are walking over you. Um, there's four options of dark, you know, tunnels that you don't know what's on the other end of them. And then all of a sudden, the screech of the train And um, I'm elaborating so much on the train, I guess, because that's how the movie felt for me. It was this, like, a series of voids that um, Arthur was walking in and out of, or walking towards. And then all of a sudden, something amazingly crazy would happen. And it was, and it, like, threw me for a loop. And I I was so happy to watch a movie like that, that depicted a character that I've known my whole life um, in a different way. And I thought that um, Walking Phoenix was kind of perfect i mean in in so many ways like going into it i thought oh well maybe it's not so great that arthur you know is so perfectly cast as you know or walking phoenix is so perfectly cast as arthur because he seems like somebody who you would just think he would be like on your first 10 or 5 names like oh the walking phoenix and it was so great how surprisingly great keith ledger was but um i have to say like i that kind of taught me a lesson too because i just like sat my ass down in the theater and like let him do his work and like all those cynical like thoughts they just evaporated and i fully enjoyed it and i loved gotham as a character too just like the way how dirty the city was what everybody was doing in the city it was it felt very much like a lived in world uh it didn't feel like a set it just i don't know it 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 reeked and it, it, and how I would know that, I, I don't know, but it just like, I don't know, when a film can smell, when you can smell a film, I think it's pretty great.
0: Yeah, that took the words right out of my mouth, Colin. Uh, I, I agree, particularly, I hadn't thought about the point of how with Endgame, great movie, but emotionally, for me, uh, it didn't stick with me the way that Joker did. Brito, your initial reaction?
1: I have those kind of very vivid memories from for example the first Superman movie um the very first one with Christopher Reeves uh it has those visuals and those moments where I still look at them and I go wow they really created a world for me um I I even think as in a way campy as it as it was ultimately the the first Batman with um you know the um what's it called with with Jack Nicholson and stuff you know the uh that what was that one called Batman Begins or just Batman it was just Batman just Batman right? yeah uh that one had a very unique look and style and it's very memorable and everything uh and of course Dark Knight Dark Knight um and and the first Batman Begin. I guess that one was Batman Begins and the Dark Knight had very unique moments and looks and um I think Marvel just in general has pretty consistent palette to it I'd say one of the reasons Guardians was so well liked in my opinion and why I loved it so much is because when it came out Guardians didn't exactly feel like the rest of the Marvel movies that had been coming out it had this whole other colorful space look to it and then it set the tone for what actually the Infinity War uh, the, the rest of the Avengers movies actually took a lot from what Guardians did right Um, But so to to this movie, I actually was convinced it was going to be great because, well, and I certainly was hopeful that it would be. I I love Joaquin Phoenix. I don't think I've ever seen him in something that he didn't do a great job in. There are movies that I uh, have some some issues with that he's in, but not because of him. So I was pretty convinced he was going to nail this thing. I, I had no idea what it was about. I hadn't really paid attention to the previews. But the even just the little glimpses I caught from the marketing materials, I'm like, whatever this is that they're selling, I'm buying. So as soon as I sat down, I was entranced. I loved every scene. And frankly, um, I had heard a lot of rumors about like, oh, there's all these things. People are up in arms about things. I hadn't really heard specifics. But the whole movie, I kept wondering, when is the part that I'm supposed to be outraged or the part that's supposed to be really like, sketchy and stuff. And, and I, that was the one thing it almost, almost took me out of the movie in, in a few places, but not because of the movie. Just me trying to sit there wondering wonder, like, wait, when am I supposed to start not liking this? And it was, it was just great from beginning to end.
0: So I was afraid to see it in the theater because there, was a, there were rumors that someone was going to do a mass killing in one of these uh, screenings, right? I heard. And some theaters even have banned the movie. Uh, I did not hear
1: that. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, out of worries that there would be a shooting, particularly the the theater in Aurora, Colorado, right, where uh, in 2012 a shooter opened up during a packed theater showing The Dark Knight Rises and killed 12 people. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's not an unfounded fear. Right. But it's it's a sad statement that you would have theaters banning the movie. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, and— I was. I, I went to a matinee partially because it was convenient and partially because I thought it would be less likely to involve a shooting. Yeah. Now in my head, I'm like, you know, like getting on an airplane. The chance that my theater is the one that ends up being the one that it happens in is pretty slim. But I have to say, uh, as the movie was beginning, and then during particular scenes in the movie, I was like, well. If I was a mass killer, I guess this might be the one that I would want to go off, go out in a bang Ooh. with. And I was, I had my eye on the exit, right? <sighs>
1: oh, really?
0: Yeah. I was, that's stressful. I know. And, oh. and it, it didn't, it wasn't a good feeling.
1: Oh, I did not have that, luckily. Um, were you in a crowded theater?
0: Well, so I went to Oak Tree, which is near yeah. here. And it's. Ooh, that's
1: also kind of a. It's,
0: well, it's, it's not a great shady neighborhood. Area, yeah. But it also is. No one ever goes to that theater anymore, uh-huh. and so I was like, "If I was, I mean, you know, right, to be frank, if right. I was a mass killer, I wouldn't go to Oak Tree; I'd go to some more popular." Yeah. Your name doesn't even have to be Frank; it could be anyone. And so I went there, but it was packed in the middle of the day on a Tuesday, right. which was pretty interesting. A Twitter joke: someone said, uh, someone posted an official-looking notice at an AMC theater kiosk describing that no, there was a no singles policy. For the joker showing <gasps> due to safety precautions oh my god like you can't show up by yourself right so there's all these internet jokes about like white males by themselves aren't allowed to see joker because oh because right. you know yeah yeah you
1: know. well i showed up by myself
0: yeah well you're the not theater. white so
1: oh, okay I, sh- I showed up by myself
2: and there were these little like like wrist restraints that they were giving out and uh i just put them on myself so that everyone would feel safer
1: no no you you're kidding me right <laughs> I'm 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 very much joking. Yeah. Okay. No, okay. I saw. I was lucky enough. Well, the the Joker got the Joker. The Joker got the Joker. Like, <laughs> dude, that was well played. I thought you were being serious. Uh, um, I mean, yeah,
2: I I saw it in like this. Um.
1: So the the way that the Nighthawk,
2: it's this theater in Brooklyn. The way that it it's a great theater. If you're ever in Brooklyn, you should go. Um. But there are several floors, and some of the theaters are sort of basement-y. I don't want to say like. For the record that they're actually in a basement but it feels that way you have to go down okay. this long stairs and um yeah so i was like well i guess if if something's gonna go down i mean there's no way out i mean sure it's like <laughs> i don't want i don't want to like that be do pad PR for them but uh oh man. yeah i mean there was an exit but still it just felt like i was like walking into hell ready to watch this movie about this
0: psychopath <laughs> And the movie was so disturbing that yeah. it didn't help. Uh, in Redmond, Washington, uh, right near Seattle, a 23-year-old Redmond man who police say made concerning Twitter posts uh, po- posing with weapons and referencing the Joker movie. Yeah, uh, it was like
1: uh, buying Joker tickets or something.
0: Like right. That. He, he's an incel, by the way, and he posted – he was holding two AK-47s, and he says, One ticket for Joker, please. The man claimed that the posts were a joke, but police officers took it seriously, went to his house, removed all of his guns, and the man hasn't been charged with a crime, but police still plan to seek full protection order, which, if approved, would keep the guns out of his hands for a year. Um, So a person like this uh, exists and is willing to go on Twitter. And lives in Redmond. Yeah, nearby nearby Seattle. That is scary.
1: Well, it's especially problematic for me
2: because it, it just shows how our culture in general doesn't really understand the use of violence in film. And and like what I mean by that is, is if you were and I don't want to be like overly zealous here and say, like, you definitely should know, because, of course, that's that's a grand statement to make. But I felt like there were enough clues set there by the filmmaker to let us know that he's not glorifying um, or, or suggesting that we should uh, become a part of Joker's nihilism. Uh, I think that there's enough, uh, you know, like, for example, to me, the audience, you know, usually in a movie like this, it, it, we couldn't get a lot of it because, you know, those characters that are going to be, that are represent, hopefully, the majority of people in the audience that are not going to hurt people in the way that Arthur does. But the one character that I feel like did was... And I wish I remembered his name. He was a great actor. Um, The little person actor who was his buddy and the one that was nice to him. Um, When Arthur murders the other comic, the one that sort of sold him out, he's horrified he's horrified and he has this like very extreme, like, Oh no, my God, like Arthur, why did you like He's like panicking, like, no, no, no. Like this person, like this person with potential, like you've done it, man, like you're done, you know? And it was just so like heartbreaking. And so everything after that, where he's dancing around in his full Joker regalia. And then of course going on, you know, the actual show with the Robert De Niro character, I didn't view it as a comedy. I viewed it as a tragedy and it makes sense that there would be lines in the movie like where arthur says my life isn't it's a little on the clown nose as if you will but it's like my life isn't a tragedy it's a comedy well somebody whose mind is twisted in the way that his is might get there but we're not supposed to get there is i guess what i thought
0: yeah i i think that art is art and we uh, benefit overall by scary depictions in art. So I'm not going to blame this movie for inciting anything particular, but I do think that we can't deny that some people are going to watch this movie and are going to be motivated to seek a similar revenge. You know, people who are mass killers and people who commit these kinds of, um, you know, senseless crimes, shall we say, they are way beyond, in a similar way that Arthur Fleck was, from uh, from trying in life. Their life is going so badly and they're so demoralized to the point where they're suicidal, as we saw in Arthur Fleck. And there are a lot of people, and there always have been, a lot of people who are that... Uh, affected and that and they're in that situation. They're, as we call it in the inter- interpersonal theory of suicide, they're they have thwarted belongingness. You know, there's yeah. a lot of people like that, and incels by definition have thwarted belongingness. Yeah. Um, they have so there's three things that contribute to suicide that they found in the interpersonal theory of suicide, which is which is thwarted belongingness, access to means, which. Arthur Fleck had and a gun, and which a lot of people had, like the guy in Redmond, had multiple guns, including yeah. two ak forty sevens um, and then the last one is you have to be you have to perceive yourself as a burden. Now, I don't think Arthur Fleck necessarily had that, but a lot of people do, and when you have those three uh elements, then the risk of suicide and the the risk of motivation for suicide goes up and so for the three of us. We don 't have thwarted belongingness or at, and, and/ or access to means and or perceived as a burden enough to have crossed the Rubicon into the land of despair and I give up and i 'm eventually going to kill myself right. um, and but a lot of people are and when they we, when they see a movie like this, it provides a blueprint so, so to speak of how it, but it 's not like this movie is the only one i mean every uh, every past mass suicide uh, or mass killing that you know was a murder suicide situation also provides a blueprint so it's not like this movie is any different but um, in the same way that you know Elliot Roger provides this example that, that people follow because it's not like they're saying yay I want to be Joker I mean these people want to be Superman yeah. but they've given up thinking that they could be Superman and so they're like well what could I be well I could be someone who gets back at the world. I could be someone on my way out the door. I get one last shot in, so to speak, and uh, affect people in a way. Like the the one line that really was poignant, again, that I don't think I've ever seen depicted in, a, in an art form before, was when Arthur Fleck, after he defends himself by you know, going a little overboard and killing those three guys on the train. Right. He, but in some States that's totally legal by the way, except for the last part. Yes. (laughs) Yes. You're right. Uh, Stand your (laughs) ground. Um, He, uh, he says, I, I can't, I can't remember the exact, maybe you guys remember the exact line, but he says something to the effect of, I didn't know I existed until after I committed that crime. Mm. After I did that, after I killed those people, and by implication, what he's saying is I didn't know I could actually affect the world because the mm. world was always affecting me. I didn't know that I could get attention because there were right. people who were horrified by the event, but there were other people who were praising it. Yeah. You know, yay, get back at the rich douchebags, you know, the, the, you know, the Gordon geckos of the world. Right, right. <laughs> and... Uh, for the first time, he's like, wait, people actually appreciate me? They, yeah. There's a there's a certain amount of people who think I'm a hero? I didn't know I existed yeah. until that moment. And that's a very real thing. And
1: I mean, that that is the meaning of his statement about comedy and tragedy, is that uh, in his mind, his story was going to have a sad ending. It was going to be him probably dying alone after his mom died. And... Now, all of a sudden, he saw it as like, wait, this might be the story of my rise. And, the, the, you know, so he didn't mean it in in the sense of like, um, oh, it's a comedy because it's so ironically funny. He actually meant it literally that all of a sudden his life had purpose. And, you know, it, whether this purpose was to go out with a bang himself or to do other stuff, the point is that all of a sudden he felt that, that, that he had a purpose.
0: Well, I saw it similar, but I saw another layer to that, which was that he was saying, and of course he doesn't explicitly say any of this stuff, he just says that one line or, and a few other lines related to that, but the way I interpret it was he um, now could laugh at the world that was mistreating him. He, he could you know He could either try to change the world and change his life into something good, which is what he'd been doing his whole life, or he could just laugh at the absurdity at the whole thing and consider it absurd, and not try to make it into a good thing because it's absurd, and that, it's actually an ancient Greek philosophy uh, that there are certain. There's a certain philosophy that follows that tenet of just like life is absurd, and it's meaningless to try to figure it out or try to wrest any control sure. out of the chaos. So you just have to kind of laugh at it. Now, what Doker does is is sadistic and awful, but. I think that's what was behind a statement.
1: I I think that's a, pardon the, I think that's the superficial reading of it, meaning, yes, there's definitely that meaning. Wow. That's what everyone says, yeah. right? Like everyone, we all use that sense of the word comedy, and it was meant that literally in that scene for sure. And you're right. Like he, but at the same time, if it were just a matter of that now he can laugh at his situation, then. then he wouldn't need the plan, the plan of like going on the show and having this elaborate... He had this fantasy of how it all unfold, right? And because if it were really more of like, well, now I can just laugh at the world. It's it's all just so ridiculous. That's one thing. But what's actually happening is that now he sees himself as having uh, a vector, a, a thing that he must accomplish. Whereas before he really was just kind of coasting through. You know, sure, he wanted to be a stand-up comic, but he wasn't really trying. It didn't seem like he'd ever even tried to do it. Like, it, I got the sense that that one time was his first attempt, it seemed like. He might have had others, but... A- anyway, so so the sense I got, and, you know, given that the writers, I'm sure, are, are drama students, they uh, there is that uh, second meaning to it, which is, like... Because, you know, the the technical definition of a tragedy is it's got a sad ending for the protagonist. And the technical definition of a comedy is it's got a happy ending for the protagonist. So in his mind, now he was going to have a happy ending. And the happy ending, to us, it's like, well, but you killed yourself. But to him, in his mind, that's a happy ending. And that goes along with your thing about, like, now he can laugh at it, you know.
0: What do you think, Colin?
2: I think it's also, um, I I agree. I think that the strings that um i think she's swedish i I wouldn't be able to say her name with any sort of dignity but um whoever they got to compose um you know joker was was instrumental oh god that's such a horrible pun um but uh in my understanding of what arthur fleck was going through because you mentioned the dancing earlier and i think that was an incredible symbol because of the way that he danced to or against the music. Um, I think it was a visual representation for everything in his life. Um, you know, he's at the beginning of the story, like you said, just sort of doing these very bizarre contortions. And it's a little bit at odds with the music. After he kills those men, he goes into that shitty bathroom. And all of a sudden, he's doing some kind of, I mean, you could call it beautiful. It looks more less of like a bumping clown on the street, and more of like um, some kind of art piece, you know, a movement piece that you could do. Um, and I, I could see myself seeing on on stage, like a performer doing that thing.
0: Um,
2: right. And and I and I think that even more so, just beyond the dancing, um, everything else in his life kind of uh, becomes a part of that score that he leans into um especially in terms of bazazi beats character the woman who he never actually has a relationship with but in his mind they're doing pretty well they're supporting each other she's there with him in the hospital when his mom's you know on the hospital bed and he goes to her apartment door and she opens it and he goes to kiss her and as long as he's listening to the music he's moving to the music um, whether or not in reality she knows who he is doesn't matter to him. And it's all, it's so that like the way that the movie captured his perspective was just kind of beautiful to me, sad and beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well put. Uh, she's Icelandic, by the way, I just looked it up. So, Oh, thank this you. is The composer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very dark and grim movie. I commend it for not pulling punches. I'm, Guessing that there were investors and other naysayers that were asking the writer-director uh, Todd Phillips, I believe, to uh, you know tone, tone it, it down. tone it down a little bit, tone uh, it back because uh, you got you know as an investor, it's you're thinking, okay, we got a major movie here. You have Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. you have Todd Phillips, who did a lot of successful movies. You jo- have
1: Joaquin Phoenix, who was in Gladiator. Yeah, which had no violence in it.
0: Yeah, but but uh, it's not the violence that I think they would push back on, but the grimness of sure. the violence and the. Uh, uh, so I'm just I, I commend them for not doing that because there's there's so many versions of this movie that would have been uh, more mainstream. I think it, it, that was actually one of the things that I thought halfway through the movie was I. C- this movie, because I, I, I went into the movie knowing it was really popular and because it had already broken records the weekend yeah. before. So I went in thinking, I was kind of like seeing another, uh, another Avengers movie, essentially. Yeah. And halfway through the movie, as I'm realizing how tense I feel and how well this movie is constructed the music, the directing, the choices, the acting, just amazing, the story I suddenly realized, oh, Todd Phillips tricked everyone into seeing an art movie. Right? If if you just if you didn't know the context and you didn't know Joaquin Phoenix and you didn't know anything about where this movie comes from, you didn't even know who the Joker was or Batman. You'd be like, this movie is one of those Frenchy movies that comes <laughs> out of like nowhere and only people at Con watches it because it's so alternative. Sure, it's so not suburban it is so not pleasant to watch you know art movies some art movies they're so hard to watch that right. you just you know when you're watching a movie like that you're like oh no one's going to watch this movie no one's going to recommend this movie like i don't know if i can recommend joker to people but it's
1: sad because like the, so many 70s movies were like this and and darker right so know?
0: like taxi driver
1: yeah but like i'm thinking even
0: even the graduate that was a yeah. depressing nihilistic movie but yet it was amazing. Well some people consider the 70s to be the golden age of cinema yeah. at, at a time when uh, they uh, you had these auteurs who were elevated or even studios that allowed movies like this to, to be made and it was a, a slightly more mainstream at the time yeah. um than it, than it is today but but yeah so so I commend them I consider this movie and it's hard to know because you just never know in the moment. But I, I think this movie is going to be a total game changer to superhero movies in the same way that you could say Guardians was that spawned the tone of the next Avengers movies and the Thor movies and the Deadpool movies. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it was a total game changer. And I, I think everything will be compared to Joker in the same way that uh, the boys actually, I think. Is a game changer for TV about superheroes. You know, it it makes all other superhero movies kind of look silly. And Colin, you said you know you brought up Endgame. Um, I had just recently rewatched Endgame at home and had bumped it up to like I think a nine out of ten or something or some somehow because the first time I watched it, I didn't really know what I was mm-hmm. expecting. I was expecting more of a Infinity War, and what I got was more of what Endgame was. And upon watching the second time, I was like, "Wow, Endgame, a great movie." And then I watched Joker like the next week. And looking back at Endgame, it just makes Endgame look like a child's movie. <laughs> you know, it just ma- the the scenes of all the CGI and all the battles. It just it just seems like a like a frivolous movie,
1: right? But it's it's unbelievable to me because uh, you know I have this these ongoing debates with with one of my friends who's a, a movie critic, and. For some reason, those movies really resonate well with a certain kind of critic that the Marvel, specifically the Marvel movies. No, I'm not saying
0: they're bad. No, they're great. They're great. But in the context of Joker now, it makes them look like, I don't know, like a third grader made it. You know what I mean? Um, Like Battlestar Galactica reboot 10 years ago, that after watching that TV show, especially the first half of that run because it, then it got a little weird, it completely ruined my experience of Star Trek. <laughs> uh, you know, Watching right. Next Generation episodes after watching Battlestar Galactica, uh-huh. the reboot, I w- it was like I couldn't watch anymore. Game of Thrones did that for fantasy. I can't watch Lord of the Rings anymore <laughs> without seeing it th- with my mind opened to what... Can is possible in that genre of Game of Thrones, so I think uh, I think Joker is probably going to be that for these sorts of movies, and I lament the shitty replicas that especially the d c people are going to try to reproduce from this well so
1: but I mean, I resent this, I continue to resent this the The trope is that DC movies just suck and oh finally we have a good one I don't think that
0: well you Some kind of, of implied it right Some, now you said the, especially the DC people because if, if between Marvel and DC and there's another uh, yeah. Sony people among the, the different group of people the people who have the greatest capacity to suck it's DC now I, I actually oh, like no. a lot of, Aquaman is one of the worst the, movies the, uh, the, Colin the, liked it but he has no taste
1: well but the worst superhero movies are absolutely not DC movies they're definitely Marvel movies like, the Daredevil with Ben Affleck? You want to compare that to Batman v. Superman? Right, no, no, yeah, right? I, like, but that
0: wasn't MCU, it was... Sure, but, but fine. But, but anyway, I, I just think that uh, it, it is a game, regardless of what happens in the future, I think it's a, it's a game changer, and what I think DC should do, the DC Cinematic Universe people, they should scrap all future projects and <laughs> base everything on <laughs> this movie.
1: Yes. Well. Okay. So I agree. Well, hold on. Hold on. Let's before we start, uh, exploit expletive, expletive each other off. <laughs> get rid of um, Aquaman. Get rid of <laughs> listen, you know cyborg. You can't have. Fine. Okay. If, but you can't have this. This. This is why Marvel. What Marvel does do really well is they find they found the right way to have these ridiculous mixtures of magic and sci-fi and crazy shit. In a movie that you sort of don't question it too much. And it is tricky, right? So that, that is what they do so well is because they add just the right amount of humor. The thing that DC keeps hitting against the wall, and I really am pissed off about it, is, you know, I love Batman v Superman. Most people hated it. And I think the, the problem is that DC is always trying to make it feel more believable, and people really don't want to go that way because they, they see Superman. They're like, oh, that's still not believable. And so right now, this Joker so far has set up a universe for us with zero supernatural. Zero. And even I get the sense that the Batman in this universe would hardly be as over the top as the ones that we've seen previously. Which right? is
0: why I wish they would s- scrap every future <clears throat> thing and do because I can't imagine what Todd Phillips, what a wonderful Batman movie he could make. Right. But, but the DC the DC universe has already slated. Another Batman movie, sure. an- another Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, that's ridiculous.
1: So, but I'm with you on this. On so, if you wa- you want to convince me, we should follow Batman down this rabbit hole. Oh, let's do it. My problem is that you can't make a movie about an alien. Well, you could, but like you gotta you gotta tread a little bit carefully because you risk losing the things that made this movie so good if you try to introduce all the other characters and i think what you're well, saying is don't introduce well all
2: and other i characters. think it's it's all about the the definition of believable you know you brought up the word believable and so one of my favorite um pro- probably my favorite show of all time is batman the animated series there's goofy shit there's like silly villains in it but <laughs> And and Mr. Freeze is one of the silliest, but one of the best episodes is about Mr. Freeze. Uh it's very, very, very worth watching. Um, Heart of Ice. And um it you you almost cry for this animated character who shoots ice beams out of a gun. So what I think that really should be taken to heart by the DC creators is like, look at this film where the empathy for the character is real and it's not manufactured based on a formula. You know, I think that's the kind of comic book movie that we're tired of is like, Oh, well, okay. So this character has to do a and then B and then, Oh, tragic thing happens. And then C and like all of the steps, because we've seen it just treat each character. Like you don't have to be a slave to the material. That was also something that I liked about this. You know, it was plenty faithful to the spirit of Joker and Batman and of Gotham without having to be like, oh, we've got to reference the killing joke. And I'm sure there were Easter eggs, but they weren't like distracting to me. So if they do go forward and they do more outlandish villains, um, you know, Bane or Poison Ivy or whoever, um, I just hope that they, you know, they don't forget about what we want, what we really need as an audience is that empathic connection.
1: So I I painfully beg to differ with you on a few points. First of all, I just had like a day-long argument on Facebook yesterday because someone was claiming that this Joker only works as an outlandish, like alternate dimension origin story. It would never work in the canon line for Batman. And I was vehemently disagreeing. And you know his main point was like, well, the Joker's core characteristic is he's supposed to be a criminal mastermind, and this people's a this person's a barely functioning, uh, you know, uh, uh, mental patient or whatever. And I was like, okay, th- this is ridiculous. Anyways, the points we were arguing endlessly about this, and the flip side of this is that, uh, you know. Batman v Superman got so much crap because of all the things that they weren't doing in canon. Uh, and and same thing with Superman the the previous one, Man of Steel. It's like Superman would never kill Shazam, he would never j-. like so I actually what, don't What are you what are you disagreeing with? What I'm so the points I'm disagreeing with is one. Uh DC has continuously tried to stray away from canon lines and they they've been penalized by it. Number 2, um They've tried to make they tried to make Superman a more relatable, flawed character, and people really didn't like it. So I, what I'm saying is, like, the things that make this movie great are not easily going to translate to the rest of their content.
0: No, I I don't I don't think that that's the problem. Now, Batman v Superman, I thought was a fine movie. I, I it's not you know one of my favorite movies of all time, but and I thought it got a lot more hate than it deserved, um, and a lot more... I mean, there's nothing wrong with not liking a movie, but it got a lot of very confident hate, let's just put it that way, and it's one of the most loathsome things on the internet today. is like extremely confident. This movie, I didn't like this movie, and anyone who likes it is an idiot, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, the way I talked about Aquaman, about yeah. Colin. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so, and, you know, what they'll pick apart is they broke away from this and that, and you know, but those are... I think nitpicking. I think what Joker proved to your point is that it doesn't matter if you stray or not stray from the canon material. And what Colin is saying, I think is accurate, is when you make a good movie that you can really empathize with the character, it doesn't... You know, people will forgive uh, uh, stomping on the expectations or or the canon. You know, if I saw... A movie about a reboot about Luke Skywalker that was not good and it broke from the canon, then it would annoy me. But if I saw a movie about Luke Skywalker that was awesome and it broke from the canon, then I would forgive it. I think that's the key. Sure. So this movie is legitimately frightening. When I walked out of the movie theater, I had a visceral sense of unease. It wasn't specific, I wasn't like looking over my shoulder, but I this movie was so empathetic, so to speak, or just so visceral or so disturbing because it was grounded in reality. There was no supernatural thing. Uh, Arthur Fleck had no particular ability. He just made choices that could happen. Uh, Some of the things that are, are a little fantastical, but the vast majority of it could happen and has happened and is happening. And the, the living in that world was so disturbing to me that f- to this moment, I actually have a, like a buzz of unease. Did, did you have that, Brandon?
1: Absolutely. uh I, I, so, certainly not claim like this is a hard movie to recommend. I think you said that early um, in that. But it's again, it's in the same way that when I saw American Psycho or if I had seen a Amer- uh, taxi driver in the theater, I can't walk out of a movie like that and be. Oh, to everyone should watch this, and everyone will love it. I'm actually surprised. To be quite honest, I'm surprised it's doing so well with the public.
0: Like, and so many people are watching it. Well, I don't know how well it's doing with the public. On Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is ninety percent. Yeah, it's like or something. ninety something. But but the rot. We all know that the Rotten Tomatoes audience is sure. not a representation of sure. the of of humans. Yeah. It's a very particular sort of person that is. Are represented by that by the average critics give it something like 65% yeah. or something so there are many critics who actually don't like this movie at yeah, all they,
1: they, I was reading through them many of them and it's one of it's just another one of those instances where I feel like I'm in a different dimension because I had the same feeling with Batman v Superman I was just going through and I'm, oh and by the way critics also hated that one so maybe we're consistently right here for you know like but they're making comments about things that aren't in the
2: detriment of the film like at some so much of what i and and i'm like if you don't like the movie that's fine like only a crazy person like arthur fleck would you know go on a rampage because somebody disagreed um but i'm just saying that like there's two kinds of critique right there's our bias or our taste which you know intellectually it's very hard to separate from but but acknowledge it and say like hey you know, this movie really wasn't for me. The style, the, the, the way that it was edited, it, it jarred me. I, I didn't like the character. He was too, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then there's there's the other side of, of criticism where it's like, I really don't think the mechanics of this movie are working. And I'm going to bring up Aquaman. So as a very interesting experiment, um, I wanted to watch a movie that was that had no brains, on the way back from New York on my flight. So I picked Aquaman, which ended up being a mistake because we went into a lot of turbulence. That movie also, it's basically a movie of turbulence, uh, (laughs) and it made me more anxious (laughs) just by watching. But what I'm saying is, like, that is a movie where there are no mechanics. And, like, you can say, I think, there are a certain set of statistics, like, what makes a movie work? This aspect of the script leading to this aspect of the script and this character making sense this logic following this logic and there's none of that in that movie but like I felt like there was quite a bit of it in Joker which is why I, I'm so surprised that everyone's reacting to it so negatively I say everyone oh, many people many people yeah, well,
0: I, I, yeah. I, I it's a bone that I pick a bone I have to pick it's a bone a I chip, pick a chip on my to. bone <laughs> that I have <laughs> is that People will talk about movies like, uh, you know, Colin, you're pointing this out, that they'll say this movie is empirically bad when clearly, you know, there's some movies where you could where you could probably say that they're like um, like The Room, for example, yeah. is empiric is empirically <laughs> bad because of those reasons. It's like when you're telling a story, it has to make internal sense of some kind otherwise as a viewer you're just like wait what that doesn't make any sense or i don't really like any of these people you know there's certain baseline things to a story that you have to have sure and if they don't have that then you could sort of say this is you know like if you had a movie that half of it was like too dark or something Yeah, yeah you could say that's that's something that is empirically bad about but a movie like joker absolutely and as Mara was saying, I absolutely can imagine many people saying halfway through this movie going like, this is not my kind of movie. I, I guess, I'd, are there other people who, oh, I, there are other people who like this movie. Okay, fine. Yeah. But man, this movie is not my t- cup right, of tea. Right. I, I like movies that are light. I like movies that are funny. I like movies that have good characters there's not a single character in this movie that is good Um, it's unsettling uh, it's dirty uh, you know who wants to sit through two hours of pain Um, well apparently us three you know because that's the kind of art that we like Um, because I I thoroughly enjoyed it even though I knew the entire time I was actually not enjoying it if that makes any sense
1: well by the way we like to pretend that that there are such things as empirical truths for art and stuff like that. And there are certainly rules, and you can evaluate that this piece of art follow this specific rule, right? But in the end, it's all about, like, how many people like something. Now, as we know, there are things that we don't necessarily, we, uh, the ones in the new, don't call good, in quotes, even if lots of people liked it. Like, you could say, well you know, Baby Baby by Justin Bieber was liked by millions and millions, but a lot of us might say, well, but that's not so good. But here's the catch. I think it's a matter of, like, there's these two different pivots. One pivot is, what is the kind of art that would appeal to the most humans? And then there's a pivot that is, what is the kind of art that fulfills specific verticals of humans? So verticals meaning, I'm into jazz and fusion jazz or whatever. So imagine this, you go to some restaurant and you come out and I ask you, was it good? Was it a good meal? And you're like, it was terrible. It's one of the worst meals I've ever had in my life. So I never visit the restaurant. Years later, we're talking and I'm, telling to, I'm talking to you about how much I love Ethiopian cuisine. And you're like, oh, you would have loved this place I went to years ago that was Ethiopian. And I'm like, oh, why didn't you tell me? It's like, well, it's terrible. I hate Ethiopian food. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. Someone who watches The Graduate and comes out saying that's one of the worst movies I've seen. Why? Those characters are horrible people like, wait, but was it well portrayed? Yeah, yeah, but I hate those characters. Oh, yeah. well, okay. That's the thing we're dealing with. Yeah. And so it's like different pivots, different yeah. strokes.
0: So before we go to the break, I just want to point out a couple of things here. Um, during an interview with the Telegraph, uh, I almost said River Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix was asked if he shared the concern that Joker might uh, end up inspiring people to do these kinds of uh, crimes. Right. And Joaquin Phoenix actually walked out of the interview and he returned after he consulted with somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think that it's weird that Joaquin Phoenix didn't have the expectation that he was going to get asked such a question because I think it's an obvious question. I don't think it's a fair implication really because I I don't think that anything like this should be... um, There's something like the, the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why, there's some evidence that it might have actually contributed to some copycat suicides, uh enough to actually show a bump in the month after it came out among young males, actually. It's unclear. It's it's you know it's sure. it's large data sets. You can't know if it's causation or correlation. But it stands to reason. It it, it certainly fits within our theory of understanding copycat suicides. And, and so movies like this can actually motivate some people, but I don't think that this should be the sole focus of our attention. What we should be paying attention to are all the other factors that are much more uh, likely to actually put it in. You know, banning movies like this isn't going to stop these kinds of things from happening, uh, but other kinds of government actions, uh, evidence shows, does and will likely actually change these kinds of behaviors. Um, You know, not only just things like gun control, but also things like uh, services for people who are suicidal, literally. So, um, so I don't, I don't think, but I do think it is odd that Joaquin Phoenix would get asked a question like that and not have a prepared answer because it's, it's, it's a pretty expected question to be asked.
1: Especially because it's asked every time, all the time. Like, I, I mean, it's both asked and not asked, right? Like, because... Like, well, would some kid watching Superman think that they can fly? And it's like, well, actually, yeah, sometimes that can happen. But we don't get these questions asked anymore, right? It's like, is is someone watching the Avengers going to think that basically if they wear a certain kind of suit, they're impervious to all damage? Like, yeah, maybe. That could happen with some kids. You got to be careful with what kids believe. Right. And then is are there some people out there that will see something in a movie, whatever it is, and be like... Oh, that person making that cake, that looks good. I'm going to make a cake. That person shooting that person looks good. I'm going to shoot that. Yeah, that can happen. That can always happen. But the the stats don't lie. If it were true that as soon as the average human sees a certain behavior on a screen or a video game, that average human has a high likelihood
0: to recreate that behavior... We'd, we'd kind of be dead by now. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. No one, I don't think, thinks the average... Well, maybe some people do think... Anyway, the other thing I'll say is that we kind of mentioned already was the, the amazing performance by Joaquin Phoenix. It. I really hope he wins the Oscar for this. It's yeah. a bit of a weird nomination in that it's a superhero movie, but I think he absolutely deserves it. Absolutely. That, it, for, for one thing if I was to point to one thing, if they show a clip at the Oscars, it would be that cry laugh that he does. Yeah.
2: And he's... I'm uh,
0: uh, 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 just... Uh. Yeah. Dude. And, oh, mean, my God.
2: You got Walking Phoenix on the podcast. That's <laughs>
0: really cool. Uh, it was uh, so... Like, it was painful to there's watch. There's so <laughs> many ways to do that cry laugh that would have been cheesy. Yeah. There's so Gerobito. many ways... To, uh, yeah, there's so, many ways right. to, there's so many ways to do it where it would have been obvious that acting was happening. Yeah. It, it, there's so many ways to do it where it wouldn't have been enough intensity, where it wouldn't really hit you. It was so intense. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is like a legit actor. Uh, he's, I think he's uh, one of those method actors that somehow gets to a place in his yeah. soul that he is that character, yeah. <laughs> and when he's doing that that cry laugh, I mean, you know, the thing that I noticed was like his lower face was laughing and his body, and it was it was a leg, he was finding something. I I bet you anything, he was finding something that was funny to him, but his eyes were not laughing, you know, and that they were nearly in tears, right? To but not so pain, much in it was tears, like pain. Yeah, it was like. It was obviously laughing. Like, you could see how someone seeing that would be like, oh, that man's laughing. But then a second look, you're like, oh, that man is crying.
1: Because as soon as, like, a lot of times he would lift his eyes and you'd see, like, panic in his eyes. Like, I, I can't even tell you that I'm trying to stop, but right. you don't even know what this is doing to me right now.
0: Right. And he did it in so many different yeah, ways, yes. too. It, it wasn't just the same uh, way. He did, he, he had, like, 15 different yep. cry laugh versions in this yeah. movie. And so. I th- I thought I thought it was really amazing uh, the performance. Um and the last thing I'll say before we go to break is that um th- someone said on the internet, so you've got this crazy guy who goes on a crime spree and you're supposed to like him even though he's stabbing and shooting people. Berto, what do you think? What movie are they talking about?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a that's just such a I don't know what naive dumb comment because first of all the whole thing starts with him self defense shooting these a- assholes that were about to maybe rape that woman or at least sexually aggressively molest her right and they're beating the shit out of him they could have killed him right now am i for like you should all carry guns and shoot everyone in the face no but i mean if he had had like a, a taser i would like be happily happy if he was using it on them whatever and and then the fact that he goes overboard he's certainly mentally unstable he shouldn't be carrying a weapon But that's how it starts. It didn't start with him like, eh. Now, he devolves from there because he actually enjoys it. And then he gets it. But the next murder, I think, I'm pretty sure is his his uh, ex-comic, the guy who gave him the gun, essentially. His clown. And he blames him. And he has reasons for blaming him because he kind of set him up. He kind of set him up a bit. Not to kill him, though. No, 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 not to kill Wait. I mean, the, of course, not to kill him. The, the uh, no, no. I'm I'm saying he thinks he has reasons. I'm saying, yeah. I, of course, no one should should have even come close to that. Yeah. What I'm saying is that he it wasn't someone that was being kind to him, right? right? So in his mind, and then from there it just gets worse. But but so the the idea that's like this is glorifying that is like sure in the same way that any movie with a bad guy glorifies the bad guy every
0: james bond movie every like mission impossible every movie the the thing that bothers me about this comment is it assumes that people who like this movie like arthur fleck there was no at, at no point and i checked in with myself as i was watching this movie that i liked arthur fleck uh i mean i felt bad for him in the beginning for sure but as he started to do bad things I did not like his decisions at all.
1: Well, of course not, but I actually liked them. I, I mean, not uh, at that point. Like, like them in the sense that I would have been trying
0: to be helpful to him in those early parts of totally, the movie. Totally, totally. You know? But th- th- there's this notion that if there's a lead character doing something or a, ca- a character that you're focusing on, the camera's focusing on, yeah. that we're supposed to like them the way that we like the hero. And I don't think that's what. At least I hope that's not what Todd Phillips is going for. I don't think they were. No,
1: definitely
2: not. I don't think so either. I, I think that it's there's a great distance sometimes between liking and understanding. Like some, sometimes they're right next to each other. For example, you hopefully will like and understand your spouse. You'll hopefully like and understand your child. But sometimes you can just understand. But that in itself can be a very intimate connection. So you can have an intimate connection with this character who is despicable and does terrible things. But it's on a basis of understanding. And that's where the like comes in, even though it's not used. I wouldn't use it in the traditional sense at all with this film. And I don't think the film is trying to get you there in any capacity. Again, I'm being very presumptuous. Like, I, I, Some people might get there. I could but- see how people could get there. And, and it's, that's sad.
1: But what if they did? What if they were? I mean, like, that's the other thing that I find ridiculous. The Godfather, one of the most praised, greatest movies of all time. The main character is a gangster, head of a mob family, who is ruthless and kills for a living. And the only saving grace is that he says no to the drug dealing. Like, there are so many movies about gangsters, right? There are movies that absolutely center around a, a bad person from beginning to end. I see nothing wrong with that. And I see nothing wrong even if the movie tries to make it look glorious. It's art. It is art. No, yeah,
2: I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I think that there are plenty of other options for people like uh, the recent Spider-Man film, Far From Home. It's like everybody is super sweet. Yeah. And there's like, there's tiny conflicts here and there. It's enjoyable. It's fun. Um, There's lots of likability there. I mean, Tom Holland is he he's absolutely bursting out of his beautiful cheekbones with like it it exists. So I get (laughs) get the difference there. I like, you know, I like Arthur Fleck, I guess, in a very different way than I like Peter Parker.
0: All right. Let's take a break and we get back. Let's talk about the psychology of this movie. What do you say, guys? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break, Berto. If Arthur Fleck were to employ or implore the listeners to become a patron of the podcast, how would he do it? Hi, um, uh, people out there, um, I, uh, I, would
1: like, <laughs> I, I would like, I would like, I would like to ask, <laughs> <would like> Tony. <laughs> <suggest> to donate <laughs> a patron of <to> the podcast. I'm sorry.
2: Oscar,
0: <laughs> <laughs> <And scene. laughs> Oh my God. Okay, the pseudo bulbar affect. So this is pseudo pseudo bulbar affect. Um, I've I've never treated it before. I've never seen it, but from what I understand of this uh, condition, it seems like it's a possible uh, accurate representation of what this disorder actually is. So basically, uh, the, what happens is people will have some kind of uh, injury to the brain that will result in that uh, that as a secondary effect, this happens. So you can have a stroke, you can have dementia, Parkinson's, ALS, um, MS, you can have a tumor, you can have epilepsy, encephalitis. Traumatic brain injuries, which he had when he was Arthur Fleck, had when he was young, and
1: later in life, presumably, too. Like, we saw right back back, uh, what do you call flashbacks of him hitting his head against the ward's wall and stuff like that,
0: right? So, the I- idea goes is that our brain has a lot of different connections, and one of the connections that it has is between our emotional center and the way we express emotions. So there's, you know, there's a part of the brain that feels happy. There's a part of the brain that feels sad. And there's another part of the brain that will express extreme happiness like laughing uncontrollably or crying uncontrollably. All of us have cried uncontrollably. We've all laughed uncontrollably. You know, there's laughter like courtesy laughing. And then there's laughing, like I remember I went to a Chris Rock uh, you know show at the Paramount downtown Seattle in the 90s at the sort of the beginning of Chris Rock mm. fame and I almost passed out
1: because <laughs> you were laughing because so I was much. laughing
0: so hard. now uh. I, I wanted to stop laughing <laughs> yeah. like, I, oh, I've I, been there brother I, I wanted to catch my breath but I couldn't yeah. I was laughing so uncontrollably so it, we we usually equate laughter with some kind of uh, willingness, which it often is, but sometimes it's not. Right. A crying as well. Like there's some crying where you're just sobbing and you can't stop it. Uh, so, sorry, and we can all relate to those moments, even when it's not
1: totally uncontrollable, where, it, you know, like you're trying to film something or you're trying to do something and you
0: burst into laughter. Exactly. And then you're trying to calm yourself down. And
1: then you still come, you know, yeah. those things.
0: Exactly. So under, uh, when the brain is uh, operating normally, there's a connection. We We, we usually can think of those things as the same thing. You know, you have the feeling and then you have yeah. the expression. Well, we now know through uh, observation of certain conditions that these are functions of the brain that are separate. They're connected, but they're separate. And if you have some kind of break or disorder that makes it difficult for those two things to communicate well, then you have uh, the pseudo bulbar effect, perhaps affect possibly basically, you uh will just something will happen that will trigger the cascade of neurons that will lead to uncontrollable laughter or uncontrollable crying and it's not connected to right. a- actually how you feel so people will have bursts of uncontrollable laughing or crying and it's awful it it is it is not it's you know people will imagine yeah. you're just driving on the street and you're you're just laughing uncontrollably and that's why you carry around that card and that's actually Uh, possible for someone to do it's like because that's one of the bad things that happens is people with this condition because no one understands it in the same way that no one understands ticks you know that they'll just never leave the house because they're worried that they're gonna either at the very least be looked at in a weird way or they're gonna be targeted with anger and hostility because no one understands that uh, why they're doing what they're doing yeah by the way one of my favorite
1: moments in that movie it, it, it's just not so much a moment. It's the, the subtlety and attention to detail. He hands the card to the mom in the bus, and she reads it. And it says on the back, you know, please hand this card back. And But she she doesn't hand it back. And later he's in the subway, and he's reaching for the card. Mm. And what's great is the card's not going to be there, number one. Number two... It didn't even matter because they yanked the thing away from him and started beating him up. And you could imagine other movies with kind of maybe less – because the movie was – I saw someone accusing the movie of being unsubtle or having the subtlety of a, of, a, of a sledgehammer. I was like, I beg to differ. Like I could see another movie being like, oh, where's my card? Oh, I had a card I had to show you. It doesn't even bother with that. It's just like it, it's, it's something that is like from one scene to the next, there's some continuity there. But then it, it's like it points, it puts in stark contrast that he doesn't even have that choice. Like the choice is taken away with him, he from from him because these people are the world is so against him in that moment. Anyways, I just thought. Well, it's house. so
2: sad when you know he's in the he's in the comic. Uh, so it looked like the comedy cellar, uh, the, whatever the stand up comic um, yeah. bar. Um, and he's laughing at all the wrong times yeah. i mean it, it's it, it must just feel so isolating um and and you and that scene and also the one on the subway i thought they were very effective because um my heart goes out to people like that not necessarily with just this thing but anybody that's dealing with something that's very that very visually separates them from i don't want to use the word normal but you can tell there's something going on they have an extra hurdle um, because there's automatically this response in people around them, like must distance, like the woman on the subway, yeah. like must, you know, make sure to protect my child from this person who could hurt him, uh, at the comedy place. Uh, let's film this person and you know, who's not being very charismatic and then make fun of it later. It, it, I, it was, uh, it was heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. Hey, I, I think we can all relate to, by the way, to some of those moments. Like I've been in movies. I think you and I have talked about this, Kirk. I've been in movies where people are laughing in moments during the movie, and I'm like, "That's not meant to be funny." And then there's parts that might be generally funny, and I'm like laughing, and like people are not laughing. I've felt that way for sure yeah. in 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 maybe movies that were a little less mainstream or whatever. Um, I've also felt that way watching comedy specials that, in my mind, were bad, but I'm hearing everyone laugh at some of these jokes, and I'm like, "That's not good." Why yeah. are you laughing?
0: Well, <laughs> now, the chance that any one of those people has pseudoblubar affect is not likely. It's possible. Uh, the, oh, yeah, no. I, I'm, by the
1: way, the point I'm making is simply that I certainly don't have that, I don't believe. But but I've felt that way at times in my life, many times, actually, where I'm like, am I alone here? What's going on?
0: Like, right. Uh, and the – because I thought about that, too. I thought that uh, – and we did talk about it before, Alberto – is – sometimes I'll be in a movie and something really horrible will happen on the screen and some guy in the back will just start busting out laughing and no one else is laughing in those situations. It is possible that it is bulbar affect because people with this uh, condition, one or two things can happen. One is they can have exaggerated reactions so they could think something's kind of funny, but then they're just laughing hysterically yeah, for, sure. for an hour or they're a little sad and they just cry, cry, cry. Uh, the other possibility is that they could be sad and they could laugh uncontrollably about it. The other situation is they could have no they could have no noticeable emotion and cry or laugh or some other emotional expression. So, uh, so it's when I was watching this movie, I thought, oh, I wonder if this is why when I'm in movies I hear someone laughing. But there's other possibilities too, like some people when they're uncomfortable they laugh. Mm -hmm. because of the traumas that they went through, they learned when they were two, three, four, five years old that in order to cope with the abuser, it actually helped if they could just laugh when they're in pain or when they're scared because it would set the other person at ease a little bit. And so some people will laugh under very odd circumstances because of that Mm -hmm. reason. And it's it's to some extent uncontrollable for them. Um, The other possibility is that they just have a different sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they find it funny. And, yeah. and, you know, as we were saying earlier, art is art. Uh, and by the way, I had a moment with uh, my,
1: I guess, ex-friend, Michael. Anyways, it was 9-11, uh, the 9-11. We were watching the CNN broadcast in a room, in a conference room. And when the, when the Pentagon was hit... There were, by that point in the morning, there were maybe 10 people in the room watching. And when the Pentagon was hit, both of us burst into laughter. It was really awkward because neither of us meant to laugh because we thought it's funny for people to die or something. It was that the situation had crossed so many levels of surreality and unbelievability. That we both kind of reached the breaking point, and we just started laughing. It was really weird.
2: Well, you feel that offering too, right? When when something like that happens, and you go, "Okay, am I going to lean into the tragedy of this? As, am I going to actually like feel all of the terrible things that would come with you know dealing with this?" And you know, one of one of the people in my family who I just think is probably of all my aunts, uh, the most charismatic. I have a lot of aunts, and she's like somebody I've always looked up to. Well, she, a few years ago, lost her husband to just... It was a long, long, several years of dementia. But while he was still alive, I remember, I have several memories of her being very humorous about it in a very specific way, never making fun of her husband. But like, instead of going... Oh, woe is me! Oh, everybody else! come with me. She would laugh, and she would mm. make it a thing when he would forget something or when he wouldn't you know know where he was like it sounds terrible as I'm saying it, but it was actually very sweet, so there's you're you're right there's like um sometimes it's better to do that for just mental health.
0: This movie, I think simultaneously destigmatizes disabilities like this by having us feel for Arthur Fleck and by uh, making people aware of things like this, while also having a real common trope in movies about equating disabilities with villainy. It's not like they're making a rom-com about somebody who has suitable affect. Uh, There's a lot of villains in movies who have a scar or bar effect or uh, they fell into a vat of, of acid and they came out and now yeah. they have this disability and we already equate those kinds of... Th- I mean, children will cry at seeing someone in a wheelchair
1: yeah.
0: or will cry at seeing someone who has a, a speech impediment or a uh, impaired walk of some kind. And that's because it's either innate in us that when we see difference, it scares us or something. But at the very least, we definitely know culturally speaking, we uh, stigmatize these kinds of things. I mean, why is it uh, funny for a seventh grader to act quote unquote retarded and get a joke out of that? Because we teach our kids that these are things that are laughable and they're different and they're rejectable. And these are, you know, freaks of nature and so this movie, I think, both raises awareness and also uh falls into the typical stigmatization of this sort of thing.
1: I, I'll um so you're you're definitely right, obviously, but at the same time, it's weird because if you're gonna tell a story about someone who's sort of marginalized and is going to break and breaks mentally, um I guess you could I mean you It's just, it's a harder story to tell when that mental break comes out of nowhere. And so, in this case, there is a backstory for why this person is so marginalized and so
0: susceptible to breaking. Right. Yeah, I I agree that they didn't just make him an off kilter person. Right. They gave us enough detail where you would understand this human beings plight over they, it, over his lifetime
1: they they uh, told us in the se- one the one sequence that he was chained to a heater and brutally beaten and like i mean yeah this child was brutalized
0: yeah so people are asking about his diagnosis They're saying kirk you know what do we diagnose him with it's always hard to diagnose characters in movies because they're fictional there's not enough time with a presentation of their life. But I think a common question is, Are they, is Arthur Fleck a psychopath? Uh, we've talked enough about psychopathy, Berto. What do you think?
1: Uh, no, I, I don't think he's a psychopath. How come? Um, well, actually, no, actually, wait, 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 wait. That's interesting. Um, I would have said no, because he does have empathy, at the beginning anyways. Um, he is... How do you know he has empathy? Uh, sorry, he demonstrates empathy. He, he, well, he demonstrates you, empathy I, towards his mother, towards his um, couple of his co-workers. Um, towards the kids. Towards the kids, absolutely. Although, what's-his-name was a clown, <laughs> Gacy. Um, yeah. But anyways, but I, the reason I instinctively... And I don't know if Gacy didn't have empathy. Right. The, the reason I instinctively said no... Like, I don't think he's a psychopath, was because I thought, well, so the things, he he didn't, like, he wasn't always trying to cheat people. He wasn't always, he wasn't a delinquent. He wasn't uh, trying to uh, get one up on people. He was just trying to mind his own business and do his little shitty job and trying to just, like, take care of his mother. And he wasn't actually trying to bother or do anything bad. And... And these people uh, attacked him viciously, and he tried to self defend himself after already been previously attacked viciously and not been able to do anything about it multiple times. And he finally did. Now something did snap in him, but it just it, I, maybe it's more post traumatic. Now I think he's somewhat psychotic potentially. That I could go with that. Maybe was he really seeing that girl? Was he really imagining that that was real? Because at one point he goes into her apartment and, I mean, anyway, so I could I could entertain arguments around that. But I, I felt like there wasn't enough evidence that I saw in the first part of that movie to say, oh, yeah, he's definitely a psychopath. Colin, what do you think?
2: Well, I was wondering what it would maybe be indicative of um, the fact that over time, as you continue to spend time with this character, he's more and more, he's further away from his meds
0: you know? So I was wondering, he
2: kept, he kept mentioning that at one point he, he, the lady, the social worker says, you don't have access to this anymore. And then later he confirms, um, right after I think, or right before he kills his, uh, peer, you know, he says, I'm fully off. And, and so you see him like, again, like sort of what I mentioned earlier, um, he starts to hear the music and he starts to be able to dance with it. So I was wondering if there was any kind of condition that, you know, he calls it freedom, but when you're further off of your medication, and it could be so many different things, um, what would make you more detached at the further away you got from that medication? So I, I would—that's where my research would begin if I were interested.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that point that uh, I'm going to rail about a little bit. Uh, there's no medication for psychopathy. There's no medication for suppressing impulses or desires. Uh I mean there's medication to help with ADHD I suppose uh, obviously. But that's not really what I'm talking about when I say impulse. I'm, I'm talking about like a desire to kill people. There's no medication to get you to stop trying to kill people or want to kill people. And there's no going off a of medication where suddenly now you have yeah. this emergent motivation to kill people. Uh oh and by the way they they certainly hinted
1: that he he had already spent time in an asylum previously. And he must have done something bad because the social worker said, "Do you remember why you were there?" And he's like, "Oh, who
0: knows?" Right. So that's another stigma around you know mental illness and and a drastic misunderstanding of medication. Uh, one, and two, kind of irresponsible because it somehow implies that people on their meds are, you know, one pill away of, of, (laughs) you know, one day away of skipping their meds from going on a rampage. That's not obviously a direct message of what they're saying, but it certainly doesn't help. Um, So I I was actually trying to figure out uh, what I gave it some time. They didn't give any detail, I think, on purpose, but... He was on seven meds, and they never really explained it. And I, I was trying to think, well, what meds would he likely be on? And, and it's, it takes place in 1981, so uh, a lot of the same meds that we have today were available back then. And I was thinking, well, probably like mood stabi- a mood stabilizer, maybe antipsychotic, maybe an antidepressant, maybe an anti-anxiety, and maybe a sleep aid. Because I was trying to think of like seven meds. I mean, you start running out of classes of meds at some point when you start start talking about seven meds.
1: He also looked like he was potentially anorexic or something like that or, or bulimic or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, But there's no med for that. Uh, okay. So we have meds that help with moods. We have meds that help with okay. psychosis. We have meds that help with depression and anxiety and sleep. But no med that helps with psychopathy or right. or wanting to kill people. We have meds that can uh, be effective to reduce the likelihood of being delusional and psychotic that can lead to you Mm -hmm. in very rare circumstances having ideas of wanting to kill people Mm -hmm. because it's like the FBI is after me. I got to kill the FBI. Um, But they didn't really hint at anything like that. You know, when he goes off of his meds, I didn't see any symptoms at all, really. The only thing that changed was, as he said it, you know, freedom. And one could argue that, uh, it would have happened if he was on his meds or not because his life was sort of heading in a direction anyway
1: it, it could be although one thing and I don't know if that was intentional or not But he did feel a lot less neutral about situations meaning that in the first set of scenes I Other than when he was in his outbursts of laughter It really felt like he would and you said it earlier like he wasn't quite participating in his own environment and uh, He definitely seemed a lot more engaged obviously for the worst uh, by the way, another thing that when, when he kills his ex-co-worker, I, part of the implication I felt was the, the final nail in his coffin, so to speak, is when he insults one last time the little, the little guy, his, their, their little, uh, friend. And that's, like a bridge too far in that moment and and he's like "Ah, stab 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 Mm. right now I'm not saying that's what justifies it but in his mind there was still kind of this sense of justice and you could see it all the way even in his final speech before he shoots Maury he wasn't shooting a random person he was shooting the one person that he felt was his father figure who had betrayed him the most other than his real father or sorry what he thought was his real father which we actually by the way don't know the real story there uh, and his whole speech right before that is about, you know, you tread on us. You don't listen to us. You don't pay attention to us and all these things. So like in his mind, he's got this sort of um attachment to a certain type of person and he feels betrayed by these people. Now, I'm not saying that makes him not a psychopath. But what I'm trying to say is like this isn't like some sort of. Again, career criminal and always trying to get one up on people and and on all these things. Like it seems like a different kind of presentation to me. But yeah, well,
2: there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of like feeling I, I think I uh, going off of that point um, that I attach to whenever in regards to his mother, and then of course the fantasy version of Zazie Beats. There's this idea that he's saving them, and even on the train, something that extrapolates his behavior is when they're they're like tormenting the lady on the train so there's this kind of bizarre hero complex where Mm -hmm. but but then and also they play with this in that in the tv show that by the way is fucking amazing the boys um this like you should be rewarded for your heroic gesture like because you did the thing that was quote unquote good you like have earned love you know in his case like You've earned the love of your girlfriend. You've earned the, mm. the admiration of the stranger on the train. You've earned love from your mother, you know. Mm. But it's so hard for him to get these things. And, and he just feels so upset, you know, when he doesn't get them.
0: Yeah, so talking about diagnosis, in the beginning of the movie, he might actually qualify for a schizotypal personality disorder. It's, it's a disorder that I want to do a deep dive on at some point. I do have some experience with it clinically, which you need to have in order to really understand that personality disorder, in that he was odd, he was isolated, he was kind of in his own head sometimes when it came to social situations, Right. and to the point where it, like, one example is when his boss is saying, uh, well... Why would someone steal the sign? That's that's stupid. Yeah. You know, you're and most people would be like, "You're not listening to me." Yeah. Uh, it happened. But Arthur Fleck just smiles in that moment, yeah. you know. But you can sense deep down that there's something deeply disturbed inside of him that he's bumping up against that makes it impossible for him to say anything in that moment. And uh, that is s- so, I would say like of any diagnosis I might give him in the dsm I would say that he's like you know twenty five percent down the path of schizotypal personality disorder um, and uh in terms of psychopathy, I agree with everything you guys are saying he he does exhibit empathy he doesn't have a long history of wanting to cause crimes and hurt people and screw people over and steal things. And, uh, you know, psychopaths are pretty much in a constant state of conning people and trying to trick them and lie to them and get stuff out of them. That's why it's a personality disorder because it shoots them in the foot. It's so compulsive. It's this constant action of... Uh, trying to screw people over to the point where they often end up in prison because they just commit crime after crime. You know, they embezzle money. They push someone down the stairs. They uh, break into the house next door. They steal someone's car. They, uh, you know, do a hit and run. You know, there's just like this constant compulsion. to. They call one
1: country to try to convince them to get them off the hook about the thing they did with another country, you know, stuff like that.
0: Well, that could be motivated by a different personality problem. Um, so, uh, the, he doesn't exhibit that now at the end of the movie, would he be, would a clinician diagnose him with psychopathy? I think yes, but they wouldn't have the benefit of seeing how we got to that point. I, I think that they made a pretty good case and, and I actually really appreciate this because, and I'm glad, Umberto, that my, uh, deprogramming of you is, <laughs> is, is, is effective because everything you're saying was music to my ears in that, when we're talking about a personality disorder, we don't talk about particular behaviors. We're talking about an overall pattern that has been in existence since they their personality emerged at the age right. of, of twelve or even younger, and we just don't see that in him. Plus, there's no medication for psychopathy, so we couldn't say that. Well, he wasn't acting psychopathic during that time because he, right. he was, there's no medication for that. So, oh, and by the way, that the the murders, uh, just because someone killed someone doesn't mean that they're a psychopath. Exactly. Now, you know. Now, <laughs> he exhibited callousness. Yeah. He exhibited uh, lack of remorse, but we're not quite sure about that because he is so pushed to the brink that he might be in denial of his feelings. He might be... Th- I, like, the impression I got about him was like, well, I I want to... He was at this point where he was going to kill himself. He was going to go on the, the Murray show yeah. and he's going to shoot himself. And then he, he did what... A portion of suicidal of people do in our society, and they say, "Well, instead of killing myself, how about I get revenge on people?" Right. And so, once he makes that, uh, once he crosses that Rubicon, he is now in this zone of life where it's like, "Well, I'm, I'm basically dead already, mm-hmm. and at any time, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. And if I get back at people, and then I get put in jail, or someone kills me, well." I was just about to kill myself anyway, so what's right, the diff? Right. And so when you're in that zone and you're that despondent, you're that you're in that much despair, you've given up on life that much, you've you you feel so isolated and rejected and worthless that you could exhibit what one would observe from the outside as as being psychopathic and and lacking empathy yeah. when you're just you're in a state of mind that results in not paying attention or you frame the situation like in war, for example, uh, you, you know, you have, uh, Russian shoulder soldiers killing Nazi soldiers. Uh, you don't necessarily feel remorse for killing the enemy, right? You feel like, well, they're invading our land and we have to get our land back. And that means having to kill soldiers. So, uh, just the so in a uh, in a similar way, Joker could be saying, "I am doing something that's good for society, mm-hmm. and killing these people is actually helping, and I, I don't feel remorse for it because they kind of deserved it. Mm-hmm. They they need these people need to go. So I I think that's what they uh, depicted in the show really well was that he. Did care prior. He wasn't an overly caring person, but he wasn't mean to anybody. But he now had a, a certain reason for doing that, and um, so I think that. So, but if anything, I think is depicted. It's it's schizotypal.
1: I, I do think by the end of the movie, because uh, I'm pretty sure the implication is he either severely injured or maybe killed the so, the the social worker right. at the end, and for no reason. You know, she asked the question. Right. So at that point, he's something. <laughs> he's right. definitely gone off some deep, deep end. Well, but that's what's so
2: great about the Joker, you know, always. Like yeah. I feel like in most interpretations it's just it's just not simple enough to say, "Oh, well he's, you know, he's a psychopath." Like there's always some kind of bizarre joke that we're not in on. So I'm I'm kind of like fine, you know, with not knowing like what. I mean, I <laughs> I'm happy that we're talking about it. I'm just saying, I don't know that we're ever going to like, no. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I didn't think the writers were trying to depict psychosis or delusions. I mean, you could certainly make that argument, but I think in the way they were wrote and depicted the movie, uh, you know, him hallucinating, so to speak, the woman who uh, he had fantasies of dating, I think they were implying he knew he was daydreaming about her the whole time um, and was doing it to cope because although you could make the argument the other way, because he walked into her apartment and she's like, what are you doing here? And so maybe at that moment he was like, wait, was I hallucinating that? Yeah. If they if they were trying to depict actual psychosis and hallucination, um I would either say that's really silly because it's not frequent for people to have such an isolated, uh, such a limited hallucination experience like that without having a whole slew of other psychotic uh, uh, symptoms. Um, but so I'd say that's a problem, but, I, but it's a type of people can have some, some pseudo delusional um, experiences so so it's possible that given his personality disorder that it did manifest in that so if they were trying to go for that then i would commend them
1: and like remember that he's watching the shitty i think it was black and white tv of maury and he has this murray and he has something maury povich and he has this huge elaborate detailed fantasy of him being on the show and and uh What is it, Murray? Murray, (laughs) Murray, Murray, welcoming him and him being kind of clapped at and praised. And within that delusion, or within that illusion, he's actually sitting there and and even struggling with the audience because at first he resents because the audience is sort of like making fun of him. But then they, then they, he, you know, Murray brings them on his side, and then he's okay with all these are like very detailed thoughts to be having, you know what i mean? So i'm not saying it's a schizophrenic or or a crazy like uh f- drug-induced del- delusion of some sort, but clearly he he's spending a lot of time in his mind imagining very detailed scenarios that are escapist. And so yeah, maybe that girlfriend was just him doing that, but it's it's a little blurry because it's certainly If he was very well aware of the delineation between reality and not reality, he probably wouldn't just walk into her apartment and sit on the couch. It's
2: interesting that you bring up those two instances um, where – so one being his his fantasy of being on the show and then the other the fantasy of the girl because they did a couple of – they did something with his fantasy of her that I felt like – they shouldn't have done and they didn't do it with the murray show which is like the flashbacks of him alone yeah by the I, way
1: I, I, <laughs> sorry I, I the only reason <laughs> i'm interrupting you is because that's one of the dings i gave it in my mind from 10 to 9.5 i ah. didn't need the flashbacks and i was like oh, i guess i get it while you're doing them right but i don't need them damn it yeah well the film didn't need them I, yeah. you're
2: totally right it, they you i want to go into the film edit those out and then just watch the film again yeah they didn't need it and they didn't do it with the the show fantasy so yeah. i think that that like not knowing whether it was just him daydreaming or oh god she's not there and he really thinks that she is i think that would have been much better as a yeah. as an open-ended question for us well
0: i i think the benefit to having it if I was to make because I also was like okay I get it i I, I knew already from her reaction to him right uh, I didn't need to have it lay, laid out but I think it helps on some level because the worry that I had sort of anyway would but I think it would be much more worse without those little flashback scenes would be that a lot of people would think the whole thing was a delusion right which mm. it, is one oh, of the I see. which is okay. one of the dumbest you know plot nice. sort of Twists to throw into a movie like this, like <laughs> you know, he he didn't actually kill those guys on the train. He didn't kill Murray. He you know everything was just a fantasy in his head. So I feel like they needed to say, look, this was the one isolated hallucination he, he had. The rest of it actually actually happened.
1: I I, I could see that. I, I I think I still net out on. I was okay with that, and especially because one of two things would have had to be true either this amazing movie with such a great script and great acting forgot to flesh out this character and made her a prop in the scenes that she was in.
0: Plus, it seemed (laughs) a little unrealistic how quickly she uh, befriended him. Although, in the beginning of that, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting that they're just allowing there to be a uh, a nice person who, right. who isn't uh, turned off by his quirkiness. But you would have needed, like, there were still more hints, right? Because, for example,
1: um, his mouth was completely covered in blood. Maybe he washed it in the bathroom, but anyways. Uh, but, so in Taxi Driver, you have the scenes where she's horrified by where he's taking her. But, you know, that doesn't end the relationship, but it certainly creates this tension like you would have wanted and needed a lot of kind of like how do we navigate this complex she she can't think everything is normal about him they
0: did a little bit of that you know when they first start meeting each other like when he does the he does the shooting himself again in the hallway she kind of looks at him like
1: okay Well, but that's before the delusions uh, that's when he just met her in the air, in the elevator, or at least that's when she does the thing in the elevator. And they get out of the elevator, and he's trying to relate to her by yeah. doing this like super creepy version of what she just did. Right.
0: And then they clearly show her going, "Yeah, I guess uh. I guess you're right." So let's take another break, and we get back. Let's wrap this up. What do you say, guys?
2: Let's do it. Okie dokie.
0: All right, we're back from the break. Um, Umberto, if Batman were to employ the audience (laughs) to become a a patron of the podcast, what would he say and how would he say it? (laughs) Um. Listen to me. This is very important.
1: I'm tracking down a lunatic who wants to escape from Arkham Asylum. And the only way I can do it is with your support. So you must... You must donate right now. Become a patron of the podcast. That way I can have all of the Gotham people that they serve the hero that they want but can never have. And then they deserve the criminal that I will deserve to catch but cannot have either. And I'm confusing myself.
0: <laughs> uh, people couldn't see this, but Umberto was covering his eyes as if he had the... <laughs> the, uh, the mask on which
1: by the way he's not blind when he's got the mask.
0: But, but you you really only see his his jaw which i always find to be funny it's like he has bulletproof a helmet and everything, but if someone shot him in the mouth, he'd <laughs> the be cape, dead. You'll quickly... I think
2: that's what Robert Roger Ebert said in a in a review of one of the Batman films. I don't remember which one. He's like, I think they just cast. Oh, I remember why. Because it was uh, he was reviewing Batman and Robin, and he was oh like, I think they just cast the jawline
1: in
0: regards uh... to George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. not not true. Um, I, I want to get. <laughs> I, f- I forgot a point was that actually the the depiction of the coughing. Uh, that you did and that yeah. Joaquin Phoenix did uh, upon the uncontrollable laughter is actually uh, accurate among some people with suitable yeah. or affect as well, uh, affect as well. Um, so, uh, again, I commend them for that accurate depiction. Uh, I just want to rattle through some things that I liked that I took some notes on. Um, I I could, uh, let's see, da-da-da. they skipped over him being apprehended by the police after the TV show and after the riot. Which I liked because the ending, they wrapped things up real quick. Yeah. And they, I was like, oh, he's in prison now. And then, oh, and now he's out. And there's the riot and da-da-da. Oh, he's back in prison again. And yeah. they didn't show him being apprehended. They didn't, you know, other mo- movies would have said, well, you got to show that, that scene. Right. And we got to make it dramatic and stuff. And I just liked that. They didn't have that because it wasn't necessary for, for the movie, and it showed that uh, Arthur Fleck is n- – you don't really know why he's doing what he's doing, and maybe he doesn't know either. Right. It's not like he's trying to get away with something, do you know? And because uh, as the movie was wrapping up, as they as the climax is, is is happening and the riots are happening, I'm like, wait, how are they going to wrap this up? Are they just going to end it here? And as they had more scenes, I was like, "Oh, good! They're just sort of skipping ahead in time. They're yeah. not. They're not drawing this out, which I liked." Yeah, totally. Um, I like that the Joker didn't kill the Waynes, the parents. I I thought that that was going to happen. I was right. I was like, "Oh, so they're tying all this in? Oh, they're coming out of the movie theater. Oh, Joker's going to walk up and kill them." Right. And, I, and I thought, "Come on! I mean, it, this movie feels like it. It's so organic and real that." all these things could actually happen, what's the coincidence that Joker also, you know, he not only kills Murray, he not only causes the riot, but he also right. actually kills the Wayne, because that was not part of the story. The story was that a random right. guy in the street. And, well, and, and and they kept to that story, which I really like. And they did it in a way that
1: was uh, very foreshadowy and great that made you second guess whether that was going to happen. Right. Well,
2: and it's much better that way because... I think the the thing that makes the conflict between Batman and the Joker um, o- across every interpretation so fascinating is that it's not just a battle of wits and fists, it's also a battle of ideology. So it's like the idea of the Joker or like what he stood for killed the Waynes, as opposed, It's that's much better than it being actually like his finger pulling the trigger.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I like that they didn't overplay the Oedipus complex between Arthur and his mother. I was worried that they were going to start implying that they had sex at some point or there was some sort of sexual tension. I thought it really – whenever writers do that in movies, I always roll my eyes.
2: Mother doesn't like strangers. It's very Bates-esque.
0: Yeah. I, I, I was really happy that they didn't go there. They showed that there were some interesting things that they had about their relationship. He's bathing her, that kind of thing. But they didn't make it into a sexual thing. Right. Um, I like how they showed that clowns used to be not creepy. So, Colin, how old are you? I'm 28. Do you remember a time in your life when clowns were not creepy? Not even
2: a little bit. Right. <laughs> so
0: I'm old enough to remember a time when not only clowns were not creepy, but right. they were beloved. Well, It's so much so that James Bond dressed up as a clown... In one of his movies, <laughs> in Octopussy, <laughs> yeah, what a weird example! Yeah, uh, when I was a kid, the most famous uh, Seattle entertainer for kids was JP Patches. He's a beloved Seattle icon. We have a statue for him in Fremont, and with his sidekick Gertrude. Mm-hmm. And it was the it was every every five to every three to ten year old morning before going to school everyone watched J.P. Patches. (laughs) And it was a a classic clown with the big red nose and the the sort of uh, hobo-style clown. And when we would go to Salmon Day's Parade in Issaquah, uh, J.P. Patches would be walking down the street, and everyone would rush up to see him. Now, some kids would be a little freaked out by clowns, kind of. But once you got (laughs) to that age where you could handle uh, those kinds of depictions... You loved clowns. There was no association with clowns that was negative. It wasn't intended to be either. It wasn't like, well, we'll, we'll cross that, or we'll
1: make it a gray zone where they're a little creepy, but, but they're ultimately entertaining. Yeah. It wasn't
0: really meant to be. Yeah. Imagine in 50 years, all of the beloved characters that walk around Disneyland, like you have, uh, what's his face, um, the guy from... Buzz Lightyear, Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, the Garçon, yeah, right. the anyway, yeah, yeah, the the villain. Uh, you have the all the princesses. You have you know princess this and princess that. They're walking around, yeah. uh, or Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Let's say Mickey Mouse. That's a good example because yeah. you can't see the face. Let's imagine in fifty years. Everyone 28 years and younger considers Mickey Mouse to be one of the scariest characters that ever existed. <laughs> That's what it's like to be me. I'm watching everyone walk around with this notion that clowns are awful when I have associations mm-hmm. with clowns that are only positive. Right. Um, so in this movie, they uh, didn't at least overplay the association with clowns being creepy because in 1981, no one thought clowns were creepy. <laughs> um, they hired clowns to go to the hospital to talk to kids. Right. And they didn't have kids crying. They had, they <laughs> had kids liking the show right. because that's the way it was back then. And I worried about this movie being misinterpreted by young people as being like, why are those kids liking the clowns? Uh, Colin, did you think that when you're watching it?
2: No, I, I thought that the, they depicted it clearly. I, I got what they were trying to say. I don't but, They what they weren't making a statement. Like, clowns are scary it's just like this one particular clown is troublesome
0: but could you uh when you were watching that scene when the clown is being hired to do various different things especially in the hospital with the kids were you like why are those kids not freaked out
2: yes and no yes in the sense that if i were there i would have been freaked out but i it was more like i don't don't want to say necessarily fear but like kind of, like, dis- disturbed a little bit. It, it, and, and, yeah, so I guess the roundabout answer is, yeah, I would have been freaked out, and I it was a little jarring that they weren't immediately, like, get this clown out of this
1: room.
0: <laughs> yeah, it just reminds me of, like, the future Rama episode in which they revealed that in a thousand years, Santa is this evil character that all kids are afraid of. It's like Santa has been <laughs> culturally morphed into, like, the boogeyman, essentially. Right. Um, I liked that this this movie did not have a complicated plot. There was no complications. It was very easy to understand right. um, i did also like that there wasn 't a lot of silly fan service. There was a little bit of fan service, but if they had more, and even the fan service they did do pulled me out of the movie a little bit. I think like some what? well like um Bruce sliding down the uh, the pole, I thought. Oh, right, right, Was like, oh, I get it, you know. Sure.
2: But I think on a visceral level, that kind of, I mean, for me, that, you were talking about, like, associations of visual things that involve clowns. You know, a clown, he, I, he wasn't in makeup at the time, but somebody, like, I, he had, like, I think the red nose, you know, on the other side of a fence while a small boy is playing on the swing set or the trapeze or whatever, like that, like, to me, that incites a warning. Just those two images right next to each other. So I, I think that's it, it works. You know, just alone in this film, even if you have no idea like who that kid is,
0: right? The when the pearls are broken, when the Wayne's parents are killed, isn't that an that iconic? Un- that is iconic. That's an iconic.
1: They, they can never not have that in one of the origin scenes right. for some reason.
0: Um, there were yeah, some other too- minor fan service stuff that happened, but. Uh, you know, like in Han Solo movie, but that the, there was all those fancy. Don't, don't say like, oh
1: because in Han Solo it's the it's the worst example. That's yeah, what I, I'm saying. I'm saying yeah, I'm with like in, on that. Yeah, in yeah.
0: other movies when right. it it's like so over the top. You're like, okay, well, I get it. Well, you know, wait,
1: uh, what is this droid's name? Let me see. R two D two. Ah, R two D two. We shall remember that name. Um. I wish I was exaggerating that quote.
0: I thought it was interesting that they that they showed that Bruce Wayne was also isolated in his own way. I thought that they, I think you had to pay attention to it a little bit, but Br- Bruce Wayne uh, yeah. looks just as tragic in some ways as Arthur Fleck does.
1: He doesn't have, I mean... I was, he, doesn't, he
0: doesn't have friends.
1: And they made, I mean, they, his father comes off quite badly. Which is
0: not movie. canon, right?
1: Well, they don't really go into too much detail about his father. And, and the other thing is, and this is part of the argument I got in, and you've pointed that, this out before. Canon? Yeah. Canon? We've got, what, 90 years of random-ass shit all over the place. right?
0: right uh, well, <laughs> what people consider to be canon, which is like comic books of the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, so, Dislike. I disliked that a social worker, when he was when she was talking about his seven meds, she said, "Surely they must be doing something." And it was like, even bad social workers wouldn't say yeah. it in that way, yeah. or at least I wouldn't think. When when she said that, I was just like, "That's such a ignorant, non clinical thing to say." Surely they must be doing something. Like yeah. you would say it in a different way, you'd be like, "Well, surely," or they'd say like. Um, That one med or are your meds help? I don't know. It just that statement just I was like, that was that's a silly line. Um, I also, while I was watching the movie, didn't really catch when when he opens the file from Arkham Asylum to find out he was adopted. Right. I didn't read it fast enough to know what he saw. Mm. I had to after the movie was over, look up on the Internet what he saw in the file, because I was like, did, did we, I don't know, what did he see in the file? Yeah. Like, did you, when you saw the movie, did you see they, it?
1: Well, the implication, my, well, I did read a couple lines, but the main implication was that the scenes they were showing us is what he was reading. The scenes they showed us of her being interviewed and her saying what she was saying yeah. when she was young, that's what he was reading in the file. So... You could catch a couple of those lines quickly, but you weren't supposed to, like, read it that
0: fast. But after that whole thing happened, I was like, I still don't know if Wayne is his dad or not. I think that's on purpose. Yeah, I
1: don't don't think we're supposed to.
0: But I think we're supposed to think that he thinks uh, that Wayne is not his father.
1: Yeah, and that she really did lie to him.
0: But I didn't. I didn't even catch that element. You know oh, what I mean? It went by me I so fast.
1: I think that was clear because he kills her next. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, that was so well done because, first of all, to suggest that he might be his stepbrother or half-brother, I guess, uh, that's crazy. And But number- kind
0: of dumb. I, d- I, wish they- I hope they don't do that.
1: Well, I don't know if it's kind of dumb. Like, I-, I
0: hope they just leave it up to who knows. Well, that's
1: fine if they leave it, but I thought it was an interesting, a bold move, if you will. But then to actually make it so that – the one. Br- th- this is why I don't get people are like, "Well, it's as subtle as a sledgehammer." One brief little scene with her, wh- which is, is just a flashback that he's just interpreting from what he's reading, with her going, "Oh no, he's making it all up," and that's the only doubt. Yeah. Right. From the the person who's being checked into the mental asylum, right? And they have adoption papers. He faked the adoption papers. He might have. Yeah. He's powerful.
0: Yeah, I got a little tired of the That's Life song. There were three instances, three, where, yeah, yeah, I believe, at least. And I, I, I know there were two for sure. I, I just got a little tired of it. I, oh. I, I, a couple. I liked the musical cues in this movie quite a bit, actually. Uh, but that song, when the third time it came on, I was like, "Okay, I get it. This is this is his theme song," you know. Mm. Um, Robert De Niro, I thought, did mostly well, but past a certain age, I have not liked most of his acting. Um, I like some of his, I've liked a lot of his movies, like Heat, I think, I, you know, I really like Heat, and that was sort of at the end, I think, of his, Goring. what I would consider to be him acting well. Um, like the you didn't end, like
1: the fuckers? I've got my eyes on you, fucker.
0: Uh, it's it, it's a good it's a well designed part for his style, but like movies like The that. Intern or just just a lot of movies where it just feels not right to me. I don't yeah, know I agree
1: I... with you mostly. I, I, I I'm sure that there are some counter examples that we could find, but I pretty much agree with you on that.
0: Yeah, and him in this movie, I thought I was surprised to actually how well he. It seemed like he was putting a lot more effort into this role than he did in some of the other things yeah. he's done recently. But it still was a little lacking. And I, I, after the movie, I thought, there were so many other actors that I think could have sold that part better, who could have sold like a... In fact, they had as his assistant, they had um, what's-his-face from the WTF podcast, mm. uh, Mark Maron. Mark Maron was his assistant. I see. And I think Mark Maron actually could have pulled off that character better than Robert De Niro did. You know, Hmm. because you wanted someone who was sleazy, but charismatic, but self serving, but also not like evil and just kind of oblivious. Someone who's just trying to be an entertainer and doesn't really care about people, but kind of cares about people. I
1: thought he sold that really well, actually, because I was ready to like dislike him because he was a dick to him. But then. He's like, come on, we'll give you a shot. I mean, they do this all the time for real in those shows. Yeah. And they do sort of, the same thing with American Idol and stuff, they do make fun of people that you probably shouldn't be making fun of. But he, I I guess where I would agree with you is that there are little moments where where the two of them are interacting, where I saw like gangster De Niro popping his head up a little bit. Mm. And I'm like, well, Okay.
2: But I think in the scene yeah. where he's grilling him, right, yeah. I, I, or in the section yeah. of that scene where he, yeah. it got, I think that's where it transcended a bit. And you saw De Niro as an icon as opposed to as this character when he's, when he's like, well, Arthur, why do you feel about that? Well, that's a yeah. horrible De Niro. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
0: <laughs> oh, for a second, I thought that Bobby was in the room with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he's not a stand-up comic. Right. And there are some scenes where he has to give stand-up yeah. comic lines like Johnny Carson, and again, Mark Maron is an actual stand-up comic. He would have been able to pull those off better, I think. Okay. Um, I didn't like the the woman at the end who gets killed because we see the bloody fo- yeah. footprints. Her wig was one of the worst wigs I've ever seen on, a, was on she an actor. A wig? Oh yeah, it was. Okay. Or wow, they made noticed. her hair look like a wig. It just that. it looked it just looked awful. Um, I also didn't – I mean, it was mostly okay, but I feel like the Wall Street douchebags were a little over the top because I felt like this movie was – felt so possible. Yeah. And obviously, there are Wall Street douchebags that existed in 1981, and obviously, these sorts of things did happen. But I just felt like uh, – like, I wish they would have toned – I wish they would have made him a little less sadistic because these three fellas were like a piece of work, you know? Yeah.
1: I well, thought that yeah. too
2: actually I I think that something that would have helped would would have been adding a little bit of you know just a few seeds of doubt in one of them like maybe one of them was maybe like hey come on guys or like right. maybe not wanting to like 100% lean into the, the horrible actions that they were about to take yeah. that would have maybe been a little
0: better and the last thing is it's just such an obvious thing that I think Hollywood needs to wake the fuck up about he had a Revolver with at the most Six bullets capacity Maybe seven there's some revolvers that have Seven bullets usually they're six sometimes five He shot nine bullets out of that Out of that gun without reloading When was that? When he shot the the people on the train He goes boom in the head He shoots the next guy Twice in the chest he then Shoots the guy in in the the leg leg. then Outside he shoots five More times Um, uh, And it's like there's such an easy way around that problem. obviously you can't reload. you didn't have to he didn't have to shoot five more well, he times. he had
1: more bullets in the back. he could have reloaded.
0: oh so he could have done that, yeah. but he didn't have to shoot five more times at the guy. you could, could have just yeah. given him one bullet or two. Uh, I, I just it's like it takes you out of the moment. I guess most people don't pay attention to that sort of thing. like did you guys notice that? I didn't this time. I usually do
1: get a little annoyed, but I guess, no, no, I didn't I didn't this time.
2: I can honestly say I did not because uh, that scene, like the feeling, I was just wrapped up in the tension of what was going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was too, but, maybe that's but it's just figured. so obvious. It's like when – because one of the things is that I've actually shot guns at the range before, yeah. and I, I have, I don't know, a visceral understanding of the fact that you run out of bullets real fast, like yeah. even – Automatic, like AK. I shot an AK forty-seven in in a yeah. in an inside gun range, and I, you know, they tell you, okay, brace yourself because there's a good kick, and then you just they say, you know, just squeeze the trigger, point yeah. point down range, and squeeze the trigger, and I did that, and I think it has something like twenty or I don't know, fifteen to thirty bullets. It's a lot of bullets, yeah, and. Those bullets were gone in like a second and a half. Yeah. It's like over, yeah. Which is kind of a bummer because it's like you had to pay money to go to this, you know, because you, you like right. pay this fee and you get to shoot all these guns. And, and Stacy <laughs> was shooting it too, and it. I have this visceral understanding of how f- how quickly right. you go through these bullets, and I just feel like for those people like me, and especially people who work with guns all the time, they probably notice this stuff very quickly. Yeah, I'm sure it's like not hard to follow the. Reality of uh, how many bullets these sorts of guns are going to have. I
1: hear you. Uh, there is, of course, that trade-off of like, you know, you're the filmmaker. You're not a gun documentarian. And so you're like, well, what is going to make this scene more effective? And will I, will I show the scene where he's reloading or is that going to fuck
0: up my pacing, you know? <laughs> I get it. But I feel like a lot of filmmakers today, as opposed to the 80s, when you had Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting you know, millions of bullets out of one hand sure. Um I feel like people are waking up to that fact, and I just feel like Todd Phillips could have noticed that, you know. You, and, and done you know, what
1: really grinds my gears is when they don't show them going to the bathroom. What are you telling me? They go all day long, they don't go to the bathroom once?
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, final word, Colin, what do you think?
1: I think that the way
2: that I hope Joker leaves its mark on film in general but specifically um, in terms of what i'm about to say comic book films is that make a filmmaker should with every comic book movie make a film make your comic book film even though it's based on like umberto said like so many years of crap not crap but you know material um Make it specific to the story that you want to tell. And also, tell the story that you want to tell. Don't think about what's going to happen next. Don't think about setting up five movies. Don't think about other characters that just, you know, for popcorn's sake, have to be there. What I loved about Joker is that, you know, I have no idea what DC is going to do. But this was a film that, for me, stood 100% on its own. And I loved it. I probably am going to own it. And I just, I don't know. I just want to salute the film for that, for just being comfortable in its own skin, even though its main character was not.
0: I thought you're going to say, I loved it. I'm going to own it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to sleep with it. <laughs> I'm going to caress it. I'm going <laughs> to lick it. I'm going to eat it. Well, that was implied. <laughs> uh,
2: hopefully it was implied.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Smart Words by Colin Umberto. Uh, final, final word. Okay, so I already loved Joaquin Phoenix uh,
1: since I saw him probably in maybe Gladiator. I'm sure I had seen him in stuff before that. But you know, from Gladiator, I was like, oh my God, this guy's a monster. And I don't just mean the character, I mean as an actor. But then uh, you saw I'm Still Here. Yeah. When I not only saw that, but then... The lead up to that, this guy committed for like a year
0: to role-playing this. Right. And there was echoes of that when he was on the Murray show. Yeah. Because he would, during, if you're not aware, it was a 2010 movie that Casey Affleck made with him. And uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix trolled the entire world. Yeah. He acted in real life like he was, quote unquote, going crazy. Yeah. And he wanted to become a rap star. Yeah, And he would he went on David Letterman and other shows and had these extremely awkward moments and people <laughs> most people believed that it was real and were
1: concerned for him
0: yeah because he he committed to this for yeah. like like you said like a year and and he didn't act he never he never revealed in fact yeah. a lot of people still think it wasn't it's, it wasn't active yeah, yeah. but it was clearly it was clearly yeah, yeah. a troll so anyways when i saw that
1: and the lead up to that and all that stuff i was like Okay, this is not a normal person. And I mean that in the best of terms, you know? So, and then, uh, you know, her, yeah. like, what a performance. So I knew I was in for a treat. But I got to say, it beat my expectations. Yeah. Yes, the movie's got a few flaws. Yes, whatever. But the flaws it has are like, I'll take him. I'll take him all day long.
0: Yeah, my favorite movies with him are The Yards, uh, came out in 2000, wonderful movie with uh Marky Mark as well. I never
1: saw that. You gotta oh, see it. It's I'll one of my favorite it. movies. Okay. It's
0: it's gangstery movie, okay. it, it's it's like procedural kinda it's great. Mm-hmm. Gladiator obviously, uh, Signs I liked him in signs.
1: I like signs up until the last yeah. twenty five minutes. Definitely. The Village God that ending
0: Ugh. <laughs> uh, Walk the Line. Uh, oh, amazing. Uh, I'm still here. The Master. He's great. Yeah, amazing. Uh, her Inherent Vice, which I didn't like at all, really. See that and one. he was in a Netflix movie last I think it's a Netflix movie last year. The Sisters Brothers. Have you seen it? No. It's a Western. It's really good. Okay. Uh, him and um, uh, what's his face? From Step Brothers. Um, uh, not Will, Will Ferrell, but oh. the other guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, From Magnolia. Yeah. Uh, John C. Reilly? John C. Reilly. Yeah. And,
0: and then Joker. So he is, you know, his he chooses... The, other, the last sort of thing that I'll say is, like, I am so surprised that Joaquin Phoenix, given how many scripts he must get and how I think picky he is about yeah. the... Is, you know, and, and to get a script, it's like, oh, it's a DC movie. Yeah. You know, uh, or a movie in that genre, and you're going to follow Jared, the the renowned Jared Leto, and <laughs> and these other people. I was, I, I'm so I commend him so greatly, and, and oh, the director is the guy from The Hangover Part Three, <laughs> um, which is all that Todd Phillips is really known for was was all those movies. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean. Uh, That's weird. He he did road trip with um what's his face uh Green ta- uh, Tom Green Tom Green what? old school uh Kelsey Starsky and Hutch right, he's so a I writer that was funny right but wait did
1: he do um uh, Twenty One Jump Street
0: no oh. he did School for Sound Scoundrels he was the writer he was a writer at Borat he did Due okay. Date ha- all the Hangover movies War Dogs which I did not like and so to get. A movie about to, about Joker, mm-hmm. r- directed by what is basically a a dude bro, douchebag yeah. movie guy. Which some of these movies are great, old school. These are these are good movies. Um, for uh t- to get that script and for Joaquin Phoenix to look at that and go like, I can make this into an amazing <laughs> role yeah. is really something to That's say. A stretch. Imagine anyone else in that in that role. Imagine right. any other actor this movie would be half as good.
1: No it's true and and now I get why uh, my my critic friend was so like he talked so poorly about Todd what, Todd Phillips is it? Yeah. But now I understand cuz like there's definitely some non-glittering gems in his arsenal but but wow you're right like that that's crazy that he actually went through with this
0: yeah, we have a lot more superhero movies coming up. We got Birds of Prey. That's the Harley Quinn movie. This is just this there's year a Harley Quinn movie. Yeah, what uh, we got Bloodshot. Uh, I don't know what that is. We Wait, got, is it
1: with Margot Robbie again?
0: Yeah, okay. we got Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. We got the New Mutants, an X Man movie. We got Black Widow. We got a oh Black Widow. God. I think a prequel, I believe. We got Morbius. We got Snake Eyes, Why are which is so many? which is Will Smith, right? Oh my god! Uh, we have Eternals, uh, and that's all. In, that's all. You know, next year, Uh, 2021, we got the Batman with Robert Pattinson. We got another Suicide Squad movie. We got Shang Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. We got an untitled Sony Marvel Studios Spider-Man sequel. We got a Doctor Strange movie. We got another Thor movie. We got DC Super Pets. We got another Aquaman movie. You're, you're welcome, Colin. It, man. We have another Black Panther movie, finally, in 2022, and we have two more Marvel movies. So pretty much every month until the day we die, there's, there's another- <laughs> I just wh- threw wh- up
1: a little bit in my mouth.
0: Which is fine. It's fine. But like, I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman. I'm looking forward to, uh, let's see, I guess that's about it. But you know <laughs> the what, Doctor Strange movie, the Thor movie. Because the, the next Thor movie is another Taika Waititi movie who did yeah. Ra- Ragnarok.
2: I'll tell you this. With Natalie Portman, right?
0: I don't know. Oh, does it? Maybe. Oh. It's called Love and Thunder.
2: I thought I I read something online where it's now cheese Thor. I don't understand how that
1: works, but that was in the comics too.
0: Oh they did that in the comics.
1: So here's the thing. Did you ever play City of Heroes?
0: No, but I, I know people you know who did. It
1: City of Heroes is an MMO. It actually was a lot of fun. Yeah, I knew people who would right? love that game. And, and it had some of the best game mechanics that I had seen in MMOs. For example, one of the eternal struggles with an MMO is you miss one day and you go to play with your buddies the next day and you can't because they've leveled up three times and you can no longer compete in the same dungeons at all or, or fight in the same dungeons. And that was always a problem. Well, this game solved it beautifully because they had this like bungee system that you could have this little buddy character, like sidekicks, essentially. Well, anyways, but what was the issue is that in a world where everyone is a superhero, no one's a superhero. Right. And that's how I'm
0: starting to feel about superhero movies. There's so many of them that it's starting to not feel special. That's why DC should start over with this movie as the beginning. You have the next movie. Cancel everything else. You have the next movie uh, about either just Joker when Bruce Wayne is a teenager, or you have the next movie, the you know origin story of Bruce Wayne, and maybe it interacts with Joker, and maybe it doesn't. But
1: you know how how it would cheapen this movie terribly to do that. Sadly, what? Sadly, that there will be a sequel. Actually, because of how much money it's made, you might be right. I don't know that Joaquin, Joaquin would
0: do it. No, no, he he was interviewed. And he said, when I first read the script, I-, I thought, you know, it'd be fun to make this movie, but I didn't think it would be a dream role for me. But after doing this movie, I've realized this is a dream role for me. And I've started talking with Todd Phillips about uh, uh, seeing what we can do. Okay, so there wasn't uh, a solid plan, and, and, but definitely okay. open. And and if they're open, yeah, you okay. know the studio's Because open.
1: it's made a ton of money. So I would, like I said, I would definitely welcome... Something that stayed in the pocket, but I still fear that it's gonna tarnish it like Matrix Two or Matrix Matrix Three did to the. I, I, anyways, my hope would actually be that we don't, that we leave it as a one one shot. It's a kill shot, and it's uh, and it's just great. And then we move on, and we like, you know what? I will I will apply Colin's rules here. Learn from what went right here, and do more like it in, in different aspects. You
0: Completely know? reboot yeah. every single. What do you think, Colin? You want a sequel?
2: I definitely do. Uh, I'm very excited. I I didn't think I would. You know, I had all these ideas about how I was going, but I guess that's normal in this internet culture. The idea of what I should want from this movie. And I was thinking I was going to go see it and then enjoy it or not enjoy it and then let it be a thing. It's just its own little universe. But as I thought about it more, the age gap between the Joker and Bruce is actually pretty interesting because we've only seen joker at the very beginning he committed his first string of crimes and he's not a mastermind yet you know that i think that's very clear and a lot of people online are like well but you know the joker's really i, I can't see this guy you know really taking on the batman i don't think he's going to be like an intellectual match and i'm like well well people who say that your your opinion is valid and i support it but i have to disagree i think because he's been so dulled by his life for so long, you know, and whatever it, it, whatever kind of medication, you know, you know, or life factor was keeping him down, keeping him from really accessing whatever kind of part of his brain helps make him the Joker. We're gonna be able to explore that later, and maybe by that time, you know, he'll have stumbled a bit. It'll be like Joker, you know, he's had twenty, however. Whatever age they want to make Bruce, he's had 20, 15 years, however many years to become a really awesome criminal, you know, in the way that like the Joker is and would be a match for Batman. No. So, no,
1: I didn't, I
0: denounced this. Yeah. They sort of, there's talk about the last scene where he's in the hospital and he kills that psychiatrist or the worker. There's some speculation that it was purposefully done in a way that it made it look like it might have been like 10, 20 years in the future. And the implication is that he has been doing other crimes and has been escaping before. And that he's already, he's been doing all these crazy things and he's graduated into this other zone. Anyway.
1: Well, and the the other implication is that Batman's already actually a thing now and that he is reflecting on how, he might have been the reason that inspired the Batman. Interesting.
0: But I don't know. That could all be. Yeah, could be. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Colin, and thanks for joining us out there. Tell us what you think. Email us at contact at com. Did you like Joker? Did you agree or disagree with everything or nothing that we said today? And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs> we